1: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: Hello and welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming in real life. Uh, Those of you who have, I know there's been train strikes and it's been hard Um, Those of you who are joining online, I think the camera is over there. Welcome to you too. Thanks for joining the live stream. In a sense, this already feels like fighting yesterday's war. Um, And partly I'm over the moon about that because you walk around the streets of London and people have mainly forgotten about COVID. It feels like we live in a post COVID world. There are still posters on all of the tube stations asking people to wear face masks and it's amazing. How few people are. It really feels like the public has even moved beyond the kind of bureaucracy on this point, and it does feel over. Um, And yet, it does feel important to try to understand what did happen, um, not only for the historical record, but actually because it might suddenly become quite relevant once again, quite quickly, if we are faced with another pandemic or another threat that is interpreted like that. The title of this talk is Lessons from Sweden for the Next Pandemic, and we will try to end up there, so we will try to be future-facing. Um, I found out that Martin Kuldorff, the famous co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration, in fact, another of the co-authors, I'm afraid I'm going to ouch you here, Jay Bhattacharya, is also present in the back of the room. Um, <laughs> um, seems like a... Seems like a friendly crowd at at this stage. Um, This time, exactly. um, I thought we had to to grab him and see, uh, have a a sort of in-person, a 3D event. He was just telling me before now that this is actually the first interview in front of a live audience that he has done. Uh, So strict have the pandemic policies been in Harvard and um, and subsequently. Um, When we first spoke. It was on the day of your declaration. Um, we did a, a YouTube interview, and the three of you were sitting there in the house in Great Barrington. Uh, and this was, I think, w- what month was it in 2020? October? October. Yeah, this was very, this felt very fraught. This was, this, it felt momentous, and I think it was momentous. Uh, the atmosphere, even then in October 2020, was, was very, very tense. And, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, one remembers kind of previous great moments of dissent in history that almost felt equivalent. You know, I was going to say Martin Luther posting his, whatever they were, treatises on the on the door of the church. It felt quite momentous. And predictably, the reaction was very, very strong. Um, now, I would say the atmosphere has changed. And in some senses, the arguments have Some of them have been won, some of them have been softened, and and you're no longer crucified in the public square for having a range of views on the topic of the pandemic, which is good news. But what I wanted to start with, and really the reason for this conversation, is that on the topic of Sweden, and I confess a bias here, I am half Swedish. In fact, my Swedish mother is even in the audience. Um, If you go around asking people about the Swedish experiment or what happened during the COVID pandemic in Sweden. Most people, I think, you should try it. Most people will tell you, oh, that didn't, that didn't end that well, did it? That was a bit of a disaster. Shame, that didn't end well. And it feels like the history of, of that period was written at a certain point during this, the experience of the last two years, which was before we had all the information. Um, a chart that I wanna put up here and we're gonna keep up there, uh, is the deaths per thousand of all of the countries in Europe from COVID since the beginning. Um, And as you can see, Sweden is very much towards the bottom of the list. It's 20th out of 28 countries. Whatever your view on the details, and I know people like to get geeky about them, and hopefully we will, that is a hard number to talk away. At the end of this conversation. So
3: Martin, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to
2: be here. Let me just start with a with with an open question then. Um, was the Swedish approach to COVID a success or a disaster? Uh,
3: I think Sweden took the right approach. Um, they followed the basic principles of public health. That are long-standing. Sweden did not go into panic uh, and uh, so in the, in the overall way of things Sweden did I think great. Uh, it managed to keep the death from COVID down at the same time by by protecting older people at the same time as they didn't have all the collateral damage uh, on other public health, on, on, uh, on cancer, cardiovascular disease, mental health, and so on. Hmm. So um, I think uh, Sweden did, uh, took the right took the right approach and the right principles of this. Uh, there were some issues that they could have done better, and we can talk about that later. Yeah, But uh, uh, I think it did good. I think though that we shouldn't really just talk only about Sweden, because if you look at the neighbors of Sweden, Finland, Denmark, and Norway, they took a very similar approach to Sweden. They were not in the news media to the same extent. But uh, at some point, Sweden has sort of less restrictions than the neighbors, but at other points during the pandemic, the neighbors actually had less restrictions than Sweden. So all those four countries, I think, took a much lighter approach to doing general lockdowns, general restrictions. Uh, focusing more on, on protecting those who really needed protection, the older people.
2: So you would have us remember a kind of Scandinavian approach? Yeah, and, and the they
3: sort of influenced each actually because the Scandinavian countries are very close to each other. So they influenced each other in how they dealt with this, uh, with the pandemic.
2: I'm going to dive straight into a potential um, controversial one, which is, you talked there about Denmark and Norway. Usually, if you go into any conversation saying that Sweden did well or had a better result than many European countries, the very first pushback you will get is that yes, true if you compare to other countries, but compared to the Scandinavian countries, uh, they had a very bad result. At some points it was 10 times the deaths per thousand of Denmark and Norway. That has since become tighter, but what is your explanation for that? Why did Denmark and Norway have so much better final numbers than Sweden?
3: So in terms of the countermeasures and the amount of lockdowns, they were very similar. Uh, but also if you look at different regions within these countries, there are actually quite big differences. Um, I didn't look at the numbers uh, recently, but sometime in 2021, I looked at comparing Stockholm uh, with the capital of Sweden, with my home province, which is up in the north, uh, Västerbotten, and Stockholm had three times as much mortality than my home province and the policy, national policy was the same. So Mm. there are regional differences that happen because um, uh, it can start earlier in one place, for example. But what about
2: Denmark, for example, they they famously, they, they shut international travel down straight away when Sweden was keeping it open for months afterwards. They would probably argue or most people would say that helped their pandemic response and maybe if sweden had done that they would have done better what's the response to that
3: i think it was too late for sweden to do it uh, because um, so in in the in the winter sweden have a winter vacation where people go skiing and in the north we go skiing up in lapland in Stockholm and the South, they go often skiing in the Alps. Some go to the to, to North also. But uh, those areas which had this, the winter vacation first in Sweden, they had less COVID early on. Mm. And Stockholm had it among the latest. So, so they had a lot of people who went to Italy and got infected there. Um, there was also others who traveled to London. So there was a lot of travel during this, uh, um, winter vacation, and especially from Stockholm. So, if Sweden had closed before that winter vacation, then I think there would have been less, uh, the, the, there would have been less COVID early on in Sweden. Mm.
2: So, you said there are things that Sweden could have done better. Just to make sure that we're not accused here of just kind of whitewashing the Swedes, what are they? What should Sweden have done that it didn't do?
3: Uh, uh, so a few. Uh, uh, I also want to say what Sweden did specifically very well. Yes, but, I, I uh, want we'll we'll to do that too. We'll do the yeah. negatives first. Uh, so one thing is in Stockholm they did a terrible job uh, protecting the older people in nursing homes uh, during the first wave of the pandemic. Um, there was too much staff rotation, um, and they should have done better isolation of the nursing homes. Uh, and uh, how, how During the how should uh, they early, uh, early time period, for example, they should have um, had staff who could, young staff members who could live more permanently in the nursing home during the first wave, and then once the testing came, to do daily testing of nursing home staff, and then do less, uh, less deportations, so that there is mm. uh, less people who actually sort of go from one nursing home to another nursing home, and so on. Uh, they should also have less rotation in terms of, uh, uh, Sweden has a very good system where older people can get home service. Somebody comes and helps them with the cooking and cleaning so they can still live at home. And there should have been less uh, staff rotation on Mm -hmm. that uh, side also. Uh, So that's one thing that Sweden did not do so well, I think. Another one is I think that uh, Sweden never closed the schools and daycare for ages one to 15 during the first wave. Uh, which was very good. And I think it was the only major European, uh, Western country who did not close uh, schools. Uh, I think Iceland also kept them open as a smaller country. But uh, uh, I think Sweden should have kept kept the high schools and universities open also during the first wave. Uh, That would have been, um, uh, for example, if you kept the universities open, there would have been less multi-generational mixing because um, now the kids, students went home, but if they had been at the university, they would would have mixed with younger people instead of older uh, family members. So you think that actually was counter effective? It was counterproductive to do that, yeah. Uh, A third thing is, um, um, there were older people who were working in very exposed industries, like cab drivers, for example, or bus drivers. And they should have been given sort of a sabbatical during the heights of the pandemic, not in the summer where there was very little transmission, but during the, 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 the peak of 2020 and then the next year, the peak there. So they could have been given uh, a, a, a few months of uh, sort of temporary early retirement, so they didn't have to work uh, in these exposed settings mm-hmm. uh, until the vaccine came and then they, they, they would be fine again. So I think Sweden could have done a better job uh, with people sort of, uh, who are still in the workforce but at the upper ages of 60 plus. So the answer then to, in terms of
2: differences, because that's usually the argument that comes first, differences between the Nordic countries. You don't feel that had Sweden adopted an approach more like Denmark where they had been s- severer on things like international travel, they could have got a result closer to Denmark's. Do you, do you think that was, you
3: know, was that possible? I don't think so because it hit Stockholm uh, sooner and earlier than it hit uh, Copenhagen or Helsinki and Oslo.
2: I promised that you could um, give us your, your top three good points um, from what Sweden has done, so uh, I'm, gonna,
3: I'm gonna fulfill that. What what comes to mind first? So I think the most important thing is to keep the schools open and the daycares open. I think if you look at the US where I live, to me that's the the biggest mistake of the pandemic to close the schools. It had no positive effect on the pandemic and the collateral damage on children has been enormous. You can't just keep kids away a school year and think that nothing is gonna happen. So, Uh, While kids do get COVID, uh, there's more than a thousandfold difference in mortality between the youngest and the oldest. So they are at very minimal risk. Uh, They are at less risk from COVID death than from from, uh, influenza death during a typical influenza year. Uh, So uh, to me, that's the biggest mistake that the U.S. did and the best thing that Sweden did to make sure that the schools were open. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sweden also did other things that was good. One thing they did very early on was to make sure that if somebody was sick, they could stay home without losing pay. So if they had symptoms, they could just stay home and they didn't lose any income. Uh, So that was a change that was done very early on and I think that was very effective because, uh, again, in the United States, you have poor people and they they, they feel a little bit sick, but they can't afford to stay home because they have to have the income. So then they go to work. Uh, so I think that was a very smart thing that the Swedish government mm-hmm. did. Uh, a third thing was the vaccine rollout. Uh, again, in the United States, you could see on, uh, on Facebook or Twitter, uh, young uh, uh, people in their 20s or 30s who were bragging very early on that they got the vaccine, even though they were very low risk uh, for mortality or severe mm-hmm. disease. Sweden was very, very strict to do an age-based approach. So in the beginning, the healthcare workers was an exception, so healthcare workers and then the, by age. And it was very, very strict, and actually some people got fired because they they took the vaccine out of order. Uh, and I think that really helped Sweden. If you look at the first wave in the spring of 2020, there's a peak of of cases and the peak of death. And then in the second wave that peaked in December of 2020, there's a the peak of cases and the peak of death. And then the third wave peaked in April of 2021, and there's the peak of cases, but there's no peak of death. And that's because the oldest the people have been vaccinated. So they were protected by the vaccine.
2: So you put that all down to the vaccine?
3: Uh, that difference in that, I believe, is because of the vaccine yeah, that they protected. Uh, and we know that even if you have the vaccine, you will eventually get COVID. But uh, uh, it does protect older people from severe disease and mortality. So, uh, so I, I attribute that to the... Okay. To the we'll, probably,
2: we'll probably come back to the vaccine. I just want to put another chart up, if I could, um, which is the kind of history over time of this story. And I'm going to ask us to kind of take a, a moment of time travel and just revisit certain key periods, because these were huge, huge arguments. And intellectually, I'm not sure that we're quite clear what exactly did happen and what we should be thinking. When the pandemic first hit, and I was, we were doing interviews and we were talking to people, there was a, we knew that Sweden had had a, a, more than Nordic countries, but less, as we see from the red line, less than the UK. And then there was that magical summer of 2020. Uh, And I remember going to Stockholm in July, and suddenly it was like, here, everything was shut down, and there was masks everywhere, and it was everywhere. And then you went to Sweden, and it was just like normal life. And there was not, no one seemed to be very worried about it. The charts weren't going up. And the hope that we had in that summer I'm speaking personally, but I, you know, I'm sure that many people shared it. Was that somehow the magical herd immunity had been achieved? And I know because I interviewed Anders Tegnell that summer in July, and he was definitely um, he definitely thought that immunity was part of the reason why those charts had flattened. Um, and I asked him, Do you think, in the case of a forthcoming second wave, Sweden will be better? protected because of that than other countries. And he said yes, he he did expect that. Did you also think during that first summer of 2020 that some form of herd immunity had been achieved in places like Sweden, and that was why
3: those charts had flattened? So the answer is a little bit complex. So uh, um, I was pretty sure that there would be another wave next winter, that's what I expected. And that's why we wrote the great printer declaration in early October of 2020 because we expected there would be another wave, and we didn't want schools to close, etc. Uh, and we wanted to protect the older people. I also wrote an op-ed in Avtombladet, which is one of the big newspapers in Sweden, urging Sweden to do more to protect the older, uh, high-risk people uh, as we were approaching uh, a second wave. So in that sense, we hadn't reached herd immunity because there was gonna be a second wave. On the other hand, uh, we know now that this is a seasonal virus. So it's more common in the winter uh, than in the summer in the northern he- uh, here in the hemisphere. And that's because uh, the herd immunity threshold varies by, uh, by season. So when we went into 2020, there's less transmission, and therefore uh, the the amount of immunity that existed was enough to sort of keep it down. So the herd immunity threshold was lower in the summer. And then as the winter comes, the herd immunity threshold goes up. And now we will have another spike. So the herd immunity threshold is not a constant. It's something that varies over time. Uh, through the seasons. So in that sense, it was correct that we had sort of a temporary herd immunity in the summer of 2020. But then when the herd immunity threshold goes up again, that uh, sort of, uh, we, don't, we no longer have herd immunity.
2: Were you disappointed? Were you surprised or disappointed when there was such a big second wave in Sweden in winter?
3: Uh, I expected a second wave. I did not know how big it was going to be. Um, I also think that you can see that when the second wave came, uh, it came sooner in those places where there had been less before, and it came later in places where they had more before, like Sweden. And that's also because you already have some immunity, so that means that with some immunity, it takes longer until you sort of reach that level where you don't have uh, the the seasonal herd immunity anymore. Mm. Um, So one thing that happened, for example, is that some of the countries in Eastern Europe, like Czech Republic, for example, uh, and I forget exactly which others, they were sort of praised in early 2020 for keeping, for for all their sort of lockdown measures that kept it at bay. But then, of course, they were hammered in the second, Uh, the second winter. And I think that's, so I sort of expected the same thing as Anders Tegnell, that since Sweden had it more, early on, they will have it less later on. And that's Mm. sort of what happened, that other countries sort of catched up with Sweden and then sort of passed. But when
2: that, I mean, I, I, I remember it very clearly because I had also hoped that, and then when that winter did come, Sweden had an even bigger surge than the neighboring Nordic countries again. there wasn't The, the catch-up has happened much later. Um, and I just wondered what your thoughts are on this, that well, that phrase, herd immunity, that everybody was arguing about for pretty much two years, it was this concept. It feels like it's now been retrospectively kind of redefined by both sides in some way. Um, and if it's just a, a sort of constantly moving number, it's not really a useful concept, is it? The idea was we were going to, enough people were going to get immunity that suddenly infections would fall off a cliff and it was this natural phenomenon that was on our side. And I think of, I, of all of the arguments on the kind of anti-lockdown or, or light uh, side of this, herd immunity was, is the hardest one for, for that side because it, it was never reached. Um, either those countries that had got it worse First time round, then got it. Continued to get it worse, and then there were new variants. And it it feels like that the the magic moment that we had hoped for didn't come. Am I being overly uh, negative on that?
3: Well, I don't know if herd immunity is a magic moment, but but the fact that you have different levels of herd immunity or in, in a seasonal pattern uh, is not a surprise. I think. I mean, early in the spring of two thousand twenty, we didn't really know if COVID was seasonal or not. Now we know it is. And the seasonality comes from having this herd immunity threshold that sort of changes. Uh, and because it's just that uh, during the summer, you transmit it to fewer people. And yeah. in the winter, you transmit it to more people. And that's what creates a different uh, herd immunity threshold yeah. over time. Um, but I think what also happened, which I think was sort of tragic is that we, all, we always can have new variants. That's a given. There's going to be new variants because of mutations. Um, and the new variants that are going to take over are the ones that are, are easier to transmit. So new variants are always going to be more transmittable. Um, but what happened, because of the lockdown, you get an, a, a, a you get a, sort of a pandemic curve that sort of stretched out over time, which means that any mutation has a lot of opportunity to sort of then spread worldwide. If you have less lockdown, things happen more quickly and more at the same time, so any mutation that happens then is not really going to affect the whole world in the same way. So what happened is that the earlier variants, they were less transmittable. So that means that with the earlier variants, you have a lower herd immunity threshold, Mm. which means that you can sort of stop it before, while still having a big chunk of people uh, who were not infected. On the other hand, because of the lockdown, we got uh, variants that was more transmittable. And the Omicron variant is very, uh, very highly transmittable. So uh, that means that the herd immunity threshold is much higher almost everybody now is going to get COVID uh, sooner or later.
2: So is the logic of what you just said, that the whole world made COVID-19 longer and worse through these lockdowns? Is that your, is that your yeah. opinion?
3: Yeah, So... And, and of course, that's just one aspect of the lockdown because the major, the major, uh, the major uh, catastrophe from the lockdowns is all the collateral damage. On, uh, on, on, on public health in terms of people not getting their, their cancer screening or cancer treatments, and therefore maybe they die three years from now instead of 50 years from now. Cardiovascular disease outcomes, uh, mental health uh, uh, has been deteriorated uh, in many, many countries. Uh, diabetes care, not as good. Uh, childhood vaccinations rate was plummeting in the U.S. In Sweden, they held steady, but in the U.S., they were plummeting. Um, and uh, I mean, those uh, reduction in vaccination efforts for 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 common childhood diseases they, that has consequences. So. so, theoretical question:
2: What would have happened if the world had done nothing at all? in response to COVID-19. I know that's not what you were suggesting in the Great Barrington Declaration. You had this concept of focused protection for the elderly or for vulnerable people, but it remains controversial how practical that was, and and we can talk about that. But what do you think would have happened if there was no public policy response? Uh,
3: Then a lot of older people would have died. Uh, And of course, a lot of old people did die. So... uh, But do you
2: think more older people would have died, or...
3: In some countries, like now. More, more older people have done, would have died. For example, in Sweden, if Sweden had done nothing, more older people would have done, died.
2: So, but overall, it, and this is where it starts being interesting for future pandemics, you still think, faced with pathogens or threats equivalent to COVID-19, there needs to be a major public health intervention. You don't think that... The, minimal intervention is,
3: is better. There should have been more intervention than there was in terms of protecting the old people, older people. I think that's one of the tragedies of how we dealt with this pandemic, that we didn't properly protect older people. Did anyone manage that?
2: Are there, is there any country or state or part of the world that you would point to that did manage to protect the vulnerable?
3: So not 100% because that's impossible. So there was never opportunity to sort of eliminate all death among older people. That would be an unrealistic goal. But if we compare, for example, after the first wave, so they did antibody surveys in the summer of 2020, so they did a very good uh, survey in Spain with I think they surveyed 60,000 random people of different ages. And we can see in Spain that the percent of people with the working age adults, like 20 to 65, I forgot the exact uh, age range. Uh, the percent with antibodies in that age range was, was about the same as the percent of people in 65 plus, in the retired population. So they didn't do any focus protection because they had the same, uh, the proportion exposed were the same in those two groups. Uh, I think it was about five, six percent in both of those. Groups at that time, uh, Sweden also did a survey, and in Sweden also had about five six percent among the working age adults, but only three ex- uh, percent with antibodies in the older uh, retired people. Mm. So Sweden did, to therefore sort of uh, sort of that's hard evidence that Sweden did manage to protect the older people in the way that Spain did not do. So COVID twenty three, or
2: monkeypox two, or whatever the new big fear is. And I think we can be confident there will be future pandemics and that people are certainly more sensitive to them than they were previously. So I think it's reasonable to expect that there will be future fears probably quite soon. When that happens, what should a responsible government do? Is the answer then that you think your Great Barrington plan remains the, the responsible one. So there should be a dramatic intervention. Suddenly group of so- in society that might be old and vulnerable should be tucked away, hidden at home, protected. And then everyone else carries on as normal if they feel confident doing that. Is that the plan for,
3: for COVID-23? Uh, I don't think it will be in 23, but there will be another pandemic there. We have had pandemics throughout history for hundreds and thousands of years. So yes, there will be another pandemic. Um, it might not be a coronavirus, it might be influenza or or, or who knows what, uh, but there will for sure be a pandemic. Um, the key thing is not to copy the Great Barrington declaration for COVID because that was a little COVID specific because in the sense we locked out with COVID because it didn't uh, affect children very much. To me, uh, when I first read about uh, the outbreak in Wuhan, I was, I was uh, nervous and afraid for about 20 minutes. Uh, because I'm a parent, I have three kids, so as every parent, I'm much more concerned about their health than my health. Uh, so I looked at the numbers from Wuhan, and it was very clear that Uh, The death were among the older people, and at that time you would expect about equal exposure because there weren't really any measures at that early on. So uh, it was very clear that this was a disease uh, of older people were uh, older people were at very high risk worse than influenza, but my kids would be safe. So that uh, that was very reassuring to me. But the next pandemic might not be like that. The next pandemic could be uh, 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 where the disease affects children more than adults. For example, the 1918 pandemic, the influenza pandemic, uh, hit younger people more than older people. So what we have to do is sort of follow the principles of public health, which is one is uh, you can't only look at the the pandemic, in this case, COVID, you have to look at other health outcomes as well. You can't just shut down cancer treatment, cardiovascular, diabetes treatment, ignore mental health. People, you can't just keep people inside so that they can't exercise. Exercise is good for your health. So you have to look at it as all diseases and not just the, the COVID. And that was one of the huge mistakes that we did. Everything was focused on COVID, and we could ignored all other aspects of health. So that's the principle that we have to follow in the next pandemic also. Proportionality. And that is, I think we can bank that as a lesson from Sweden
2: because that's something Anders Tegnell talked about a lot. He talked a lot about I'm that. I'm minister in, for health, not yeah. minister for COVID. That was his line that he kept repeating. Yeah.
3: He did very good on that. And he mentioned that many times during his press conferences. And I think the Swedish public understood that because of he, he made that very, very clear. So proportionality is our yeah, lesson number yeah. one. Lesson two. Uh, another one is that we have to look at it long term, not short term. Uh, in the beginning here, if we looked at here, you would think, okay, UK and Sweden is doing terrible, but the rest of Europe is doing great. So they're doing the right approach. Well, but uh, if you sort of push the pandemic forward, that doesn't really help and it can actually harm because then people will get sick when they are older, which they have more risk. So you can't look, and people were just looking at the current data instead of looking at uh, the projection for the future. And that's also something I understand. Tegnell was very, very uh, uh, vocal about, I know during one of the interviews he said, uh, uh, come back in a year mm. and we'll see which what the, we did, the, yeah. so, uh, he very much thought of it long term. Uh, and that's another principle that we have to, to do whatever the next pandemic is. And then the third one is we have to focus on those who are vulnerable, who are at high risk. And everybody's not going to be the same risk. So if the next pandemic is mostly uh, dangerous to children, well, then we have to protect the children. If the next pandemic is mostly dangerous to old people, we have to protect the old people. If it's mostly dangerous to people with uh, some underlying health condition like diabetes, that's the people we have to to protect. So Mm. that focus protection, I think, is always the key thing to protect those who are at highest risk. But who that group is for the next pandemic, we have no idea. In this case it was the older people, mm. but next time it might be a different group. So this is
2: the hardest one, isn't it? I think the first two principles there, which is keep things in proportion, keep a longer term view, I think a lot of people would now sign up to and in retrospect feel that weren't necessarily adhered to. This third one of focus protection remains very unproven in a sense because the, the argument was you can't isolate one group in society Because everyone moves around all the time and we don't have mechanisms to do that and actually this whole atmosphere of solidarity that everyone was so keen on and It was all about everybody trying to keep levels low so that it didn't reach the older people and I haven't yet got an example of a country where they they, they didn't manage it so That's the one I struggle with most, that in a future pandemic, for example, children, we can't really take children out of society because they need to be fed and clothed and looked after by adults who are mixing. So are you sure that we can, we should be trying in the next pandemic to (laughs) have kind of these lockdowns for certain groups in society, or even if they're voluntary, withdrawals from society?
3: We actually did focus protection, and we did it successfully, but for the wrong group. If you look, for example, as Toronto, uh, and you look at the different neighborhoods, the wealthy neighborhood versus the working-class neighborhoods, in the very beginning of the pandemic, they're about the same level of COVID. Lockdowns goes in, COVID plateaus in the rich neighborhoods continue to rise in the working class neighborhoods. Uh, we see the same thing in Los Angeles. Um, so in a sense, we did focus protection for, for, for young, people. wealthy uh, uh, professionals like lawyers, or bankers, or uh, journalists, or scientists. Uh, And and successfully so because there was a differential in in cover mortality in these groups. Uh, And we can never separate it completely. So we can never protect a group 100%. But if you take all the cab drivers uh, and let them, who, who cannot work from home because cab drivers cannot work from home, But if you let them sort of take a sabbatical for a few months during the height of the pandemic, they are less likely to be exposed. Some of them will still be exposed and some of them will still die, but you reduce the numbers there. So, uh, and I think also the numbers I mentioned from Sweden versus Spain sort of shows that you can actually make a difference and reduce the exposure to the older people like they did in Sweden. Not perfectly, but compared to Spain they did it. And I think the difference between these curves of, for example, Sweden and Spain is that uh, uh, Sweden was more successful in protecting the, the older people. Uh, if you look at Norway, I think it was even more uh, successful. I think that Norway has a different uh, nursing home uh, system than Sweden, which is much better in terms of uh, infectious disease prevention. They tend to have more smaller Smaller homes, for example, are less, less commercial homes. So what about the vaccines? I feel
2: like I've got to ask.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you
1: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: Does is your view that the vaccines have been a success? It sounds like you think they have. Um, many people will be more disappointed in the performance of the vaccines. I mean when they first were announced, it was gonna be 95% efficacy, which meant 95% of people wouldn't get it as it was defined at the time. That's That didn't happen. And now we're on booster number four for many people. Um, do you feel the vaccines have,
3: have worked? Uh, it has both been a success and an enormous failure. And, uh, so first of all, in general, I'm very much pro-vaccines. I've been working with vaccines for for, for uh, over 20 years. And uh, I think vaccines are one of the greatest inventions uh, that we have as, as uh, uh, humankind. And it has saved, like the smallpox vaccine by itself, for example, has saved millions of lives. Um, but the way that the vaccines were launched and, uh, and utilized, I think, uh, was a scandal. Um, you mentioned that there was 95% efficacy. And the clinical trials for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines showed 95% efficacy for symptomatic disease uh, during the few months, maybe three or four months after, after uh, <coughs> Uh, after getting the second dose. Now, symptomatic disease is not what we really care about. Uh, What we really care about is death and hospitalizations. So the clinical trials uh, that came out for Pfizer-Moderna did not show a reduction in mortality uh, for these vaccines. Neither did it show a a long-term reduction in, in because it was only very short. Uh, so, uh, what it turns out was that the immunity wanes very quickly. So you will still get, get uh, COVID. Uh, the, the protection against death stays a little bit longer. Uh, uh, so, because when we spoke uh, earlier just now
2: when I we t- you talked about the third wave in Sweden and how there was a wave of cases but there wasn't a wave of death yeah.
3: and you did put that down to the vaccine yeah. so you do think so that was a huge success because that the that third wave in Sweden came a few months after the oldest people had been vaccinated so by vaccinating the older people first they managed to push that uh, Wave down. If they had done vaccinations equally among old and young, there would still have been a peak mm. because uh, the old people would not have been protected as much. So, it, so what's the scandal then? You used the word scandal. What's the scandal? Well, it was overpromised. Vaccine? It was overpromised. Uh, but the other scandal is that there has been a denial of uh, national immunity. So if you have had COVID, you have excellent immunity. You might still get COVID at some point in the future, but it will be much milder. Uh, Just like it is if you get infected by one of the other coronaviruses, which you had been exposed to probably since you were a child. Uh, So this denial of natural immunity by uh, many uh, public health authorities, including the the current head of the Center for Disease Control in, in the United States, uh, is uh, is very bad because uh, why would you vaccinate people who all have immunity when there are a lot of people around the world who don't have it and who need the vaccines. So you're wasting vaccines on people who don't need it when it should go to the people, all people both in the US and in Europe and India and Brazil and so on who have not had a vaccine and who needed to protect themselves. So I think that's one scandal. Uh, Uh, Also, just denial of of national immunity. People know about this. We've known about national immunity since 430 BC during the Athenian plague. Uh, So this is not a new concept. Uh, It would have been shocking if if the immunity from the vaccine was better than the immunity from having recovered from COVID. So. uh, by pushing this vaccine on those who already had COVID, it was both unnecessary and unethical. But it also diminishes the trust in public health authorities and it diminishes the trust in vaccines. And for example, the polio vaccine and the measles vaccines are incredibly important vaccines. So uh, there's now an enormous amount or growing amount of vaccine skepticism and vaccine hesitancy that sort of spill over on other vaccines. So it's very natural and I very much understand it, but these vaccine fanatics who sort of wanted, insisted that everybody should be vaccinated, including those who have already had immunity from having recovered from COVID, I think they have destroyed uh, the confidence in vaccines in general to an extent that uh, a small group of sort of uh, pre-COVID so-called anti-vaxxers had never succeeded. So uh, I find it very, very uh, disappointing and disturbing that they play around with the scientific knowledge that we've had for so long, uh, and thereby destroying uh, the confidence in vaccines, other vaccines that are critically important. So you think
2: they should have remained voluntary across the board and no mandates, or what's your Uh, view? I don't
3: think there should be any mandates for vaccines uh, for for any age group. Also, I work on vaccine safety. It takes time to to know to what extent there are adverse reactions, and we still don't know the full picture of that. So uh, for that reason alone, there shouldn't be any mandates. Uh, But I don't think, for example, children should get the COVID vaccine. Uh, They are at minuscule risk from uh, serious complications from COVID, and we know that there are some adverse reactions like myocarditis, for example, but we don't know the full extent of it. So, uh, and, and by this point, uh, more than 75% of kids in the US have had COVID as probably this similar number uh, in, in Europe. So they don't, those 75%, I mean, they already have excellent immunity. Are you worried about this? This,
2: you know, there's these studies coming out showing adverse uh, reactions to mRNA vaccines. The data is still being gathered. We're not sure exactly what it shows, but do you think that they are causing harms? Uh,
3: we know that there are certain harms because we proved that myocarditis and irisjection to the mRNA vaccines. We know that there are blood clots from the AstraZeneca and the J&J vaccines. Uh, we know about the anaphylaxis. But we don't have the, big, uh, the full picture yet. Uh, and I think some of the, uh, so, so eventually we will know more about it. But it's always risk-benefit so for all the people who haven't had COVID, uh, the benefit, <coughs> the, the risk of COVID is quite high uh, for mortality, maybe uh, 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 up to 5% risk of dying. So even if there's a small risk from the vaccine, sort of the benefit outweighs uh, that small risk. But for a child who has minuscule risk for, uh, for, for dying or serious complication of COVID even if it's a tiny risk of of adverse reactions, that will overweight the benefits. So you have to always balance the risks and benefits, and because the risk varies so greatly with age, you have to sort of take that into account when you decide who should get vaccinated and who shouldn't.
2: So what what would the age be, knowing what you know now? What, in your view, is the age at which it's no longer sensible risk-reward-wise to take the COVID vaccine?
3: So it's hard to say a specific age, but if you were 83 years old uh, or 77 years old and you haven't had a COVID, uh, then uh, I would certainly recommend you to take uh, the vaccine if you haven't already done so. Uh, And especially in the fall when the next wave is sort of approaching. Uh, that sort of seems to be the best time. If you're 50? On the other hand, if you are uh, 5 or 15, I would not uh, suggest that you should be vaccinated. But what that cutoff is, uh, is we don't know, we don't be sort of, it's impossible to say what the correct cutoff is. And that's one reason for not doing the mandate.
2: In a moment I'm going to come to some questions from the audience and also from our online audience, but I just wanted to ask a bit more of a personal or a reflective question, which is that leaving aside the technical arguments over lockdowns and vaccines and all of that, how has your personal experience been of this? I mean, you, you've been attacked a great deal. Um, I, you're no longer a, a professor at Harvard. You have parted company with that university, but um, and you are now focusing on um, these other organizations, which are, are Brownstone and The Academy of Science and Freedom. The Academy of Science and Freedom. What reflections do you have about the atmosphere, the politics, how the debate became so unbelievably hostile? Uh, And I suppose, I should say, is there anything we can learn from Sweden in that respect? Do you think there's a kind of cooler temperament up there that we should try to (laughs) remember in future controversies?
3: So I think there's a lesson to learn from Sweden, because uh, since I read Swedish, uh, I was following, I've been following the, the debate in the Swedish news media, and those who opposed the Swedish, people in Sweden who opposed uh, Anders Tegnell and his strategy, and wanted to do more the lockdowns, like the UK and other European countries, they were heard in the Swedish media. So there was a discussion on both sides. And I think that was very healthy, but very, very, very good. And then people can read sort of the different arguments. I think in the U.S. it was very one-sided. Uh, it was, uh, people sort of assumed that there was scientific consensus for the lockdowns. And there were s- several of us, and, and among my own colleagues, infectious disease and colleagues that I know personally, the majority were against the lockdowns. Uh, But there was this perception that there was a consensus for lockdowns. And if somebody spoke out, they were sort of realized that's one person or they're not an epidemiologist, Uh, they are something else. So, and I think that's what made, that's what, uh, where the great brain declaration made a difference. Because uh, when that came, there was nothing new in it. Uh, it was, uh, of, all, of all the things I've ever published, uh, it probably had the least novel scientific ideas in it. It was sort of already there in the pandemic plans that countries had for years before, and a lot of people had said it before, including the three of us. But the difference was that it came from three people rather than one person. Uh, all of the three of us uh, are have worked on infectious disease technology. Uh, it included the person who, in my, in my mind, is the preeminent infectious disease ethnologist in the world, uh, Professor Snetter Gupta at Oxford University. Uh, and all of us came from reasonably respectable universities, uh, Oxford, Harvard, and Stanford. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was impossible to ignore. So I think what, and we, were, we, were, we were attacked, uh, including by the NIH director, Collins, and Anthony Fauci, and uh, Jeremy Farrar at the Wellcome Trust here, and uh, uh, Christian Drosten in in, uh, in Germany, who call up pseudoscientists. Uh, But I think the key thing was to show the public that there was not scientific consensus for lockdowns, that there were many scientists, and we had uh, uh, thousands and thousands of other scientists and public health practitioners who signed it, as well as uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands in the public. Uh, so, it was sort of proof that there was no consensus, it sort of popped the bubble, uh, this, uh, proving that there was no consensus for lockdowns. And that's why it was attacked, I think. Um, How was
2: it for you though, you're there at Harvard, do you feel that you were defended by the university properly?
5: Do you uh, feel like...
3: No, I didn't get much defense from the university, no. <laughs> Any defense? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> I got private emails from many of the faculty members, uh, some of whom many of who I never heard of before, so there was, uh, there was such support, yes, from individuals.: But we got to that incredibly
2: scary place where, at one of the world 's preeminent educational establishments, a professor is getting secret furtive emails from colleagues supporting them, but nothing in public and being attacked in the media and by members of the government, the university doesn't defend them, even though they're trying to delegitimize your professional
3: work. I mean, we got to quite a scary place, didn't we? I think that's a huge problem for science uh, as we move forward, because science can only thrive with discussions. Uh, It's a process. And if if we don't have open discourse about science, science is gonna die. So as we go forward, uh, I mean, I, I, never, I never doubted that we would sort of be right and uh, that Sweden would sort of come out uh, uh, and prove it to have been right about the pandemic. I never doubted that. I knew that was going to happen. But uh, uh, I think we have a big problem in science that uh, we have to fix the science operates. I think it's very centralized. Uh, is what uh, Dr. Gupta says is sort of a cartel system. So within different branches of science, you sort of have a cartel system who is controlling the research funding, uh, publications, and so on. And for example, in in uh, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, sits on the biggest pile of infectious disease research money in the world, and he has for 40 years. So it's very hard for any scientist to object to what he's saying, because that has consequences can have consequences down the road. So uh, we have to sort of decentralize how, how science is operated, so we don't have this, this sort of cartel system. Um,
2: OK. Um, I'm going to come to some questions, first of all, in the room. Um, I have Toby here, but I'm going to go to a guy at the back first, and then Toby in the front row. The
5: first question. Like, you, you said, like, in some future pandemics, uh, the initial response might, might vary given the that we don't know which particular group is the, the vulnerable one would you say that uh, initial lockdowns were might be actually a good response if we don't know so like some academics and analysts argued in favor of initial lockdowns until we find out what actually be what what should be the the, the, the outcome the second question uh, is related to to, to uh, collateral damage that you are actually very into it. Uh, would you say that there is not only collateral damage related to what we know is the risks from previous epidemics and pandemics we know, like mental health, physical health, a lot of this, but there are also those unknown unknowns, like we don't know when, when we uh, uh, phase, when we impose lockdowns indiscriminately top, top top bottom. We can cause many problems we are not aware of, that's why I'm surprised that like, authors like Nassim Taleb, who's very well known for unknown unknown concept, actually argued in favor of lockdowns, mm. but somehow failed to realize that unknown unknowns are also relevant for this collateral damage side. So this is, this is the two questions, sorry for yeah. being too, too long. So on the second question,
3: I agree with you 100%. Uh, I think it was more of a comment than a question. So <laughs> I, I agree with you. Uh, on the first one, I think whenever there's a new pandemic, we will know pretty quickly who are at risk because we will find out who is dying. So I don't, I'm don't, i not concerned about that. I think that will be clear very early on. Uh, so I think the one argument for an early lockdown is sort of to flatten the curve so that everybody do not get sick at the same time. That doesn't, uh, that just sort of means to push it, a, some of the cases a little bit in the future so that uh, we can take care of people when they get sick. So I think that is an argument for, uh, for lockdown. But I think that that lockdown should also have been for older people because they were the ones who went to the hospitals. They were the ones who were sort of over potentially overwhelming the system. So, so in my view, that early lockdown should also have been sort of focused on the older people to make sure that they, uh, we sort of spread those cases out. So no universal lockdowns? Not for the COVID. Mm. So, Toby.
4: Toby Young, I'm the editor of the Daily Skeptic, editor-in-chief of the Daily Skeptic. Um, when it was lockdown skeptics, I think you you've con- you contributed.
3: Yes, yeah. um,
4: I just wanted to begin by saluting your moral courage and your commitment to public health and scientific rigor, you've paid a heavy price for, though you may not have realized you would have been paying that price when you signed the Great Barrington Declaration, but nonetheless, I think it took a a great deal of moral courage, so thank you. Um, uh, but my question is, you, you referred earlier to um, the efforts by Francis Collins, Jeremy Farrar, Anthony Fauci, Christian Dawson, and of course many others over here, the signatories of the John Snow Memorandum, to discredit the signatories, particularly the three principal signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration, um, and, uh, and to delegitimize you, to cast you as beyond the pale in order to preserve the illusion of scientific consensus behind the lockdown policy. And my question is, is about their motives. And um, within the kind of lockdown skeptic community, there is this great kind of schism between the conspiracy theorists and the cock-up theorists. And I'm a, I'm a <laughs> cock-up guy. Um, uh, but, but what I find it difficult when arguing with the conspiracists. They say, well, look, how do you explain the coordinated effort of these scientific gatekeepers, these controllers of vast budgets, these people with the ears of political leaders, huge influence over public policy. How do you explain this coordinated effort on their part to discredit you and Janetra Gupta and um, Jay Bhattacharya? You can't quite explain it for self-interested reasons. I mean, in a way, they made themselves look foolish. And it's all kind of come out now that it was a coordinated. Jeremy Farrell revealed it in his memoir. Um, uh, and 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 they and you know if if their faith is in the scientific method, why did they do something so antithetical to the scientific method as to try and demonise and smear people who were merely challenging, you know, scientific orthodoxy? Why did they? Why did they in a way betray their faith? What they've done has undermined, as you yourself assert, public trust in science, which is you know that's their lodestar. So they've made themselves look foolish, they betrayed their faith, there's no obvious self-interested reason for them to have done it, so what's the explanation, if it wasn't that they were enlisted in okay. some kind of diabolical conspiracy?
2: <laughs> Martin. <laughs> uh,
3: well, I, don't, I can't read their minds, but I have two comments. One is, they clearly don't have faith in the scientific method because if you do believe in science, you believe in open discourse. And if somebody disagree with me, I want to debate them and discuss with them and use my scientific argument to try to convince them. Uh, uh, Or if they succeed to convince me, great. Uh, That can also happen, so, but that discourse However, the, whatever it is, the end result, I think, is critical, and that is when you believe in science. So anybody who tries to shut down scientific discussion does not believe, I think, in, in science and the Enlightenment. Uh, so therefore, I don't think they do believe that, uh, even though I can't read their brains. I mean, I think the other explanation, at least when it comes to Anthony Fauci, is that he is a, he's a lab scientist. Uh, that's virology and immunology, and he knows more about immunology than I do, uh, but he's not a public health scientist. Uh, and I think he doesn't understand infectious disease epidemiology and public health. Um, the principles of looking not only to one disease, but at multiple diseases, looking long-term and not short-term, looking at all members of society, not only the uh, <coughs> those who can well, well enough uh, that they can work from home. So those are prin- the basic principles of public health that I think that somebody like Anthony Fauci do not understand, um, because he's a lab scientist. Uh, he, for example, said it's impossible to protect the older people with focus protection. If you're a public health scientist, I think it's obvious that you can do it. Not 100%, but it's obvious they you can do a lot more. Uh, And I think Christian Drosten is very similar, he's a virologist, a lab scientist, with very little understanding of public health. But they were very well connected because uh, they're sort of leading people in infectious diseases in their countries. And Fauci is head of NIID. Jeremy Farrar is the head of the Wellcome Trust, which is, I think, one of the biggest uh, uh, funding agencies of medical research in the world. They definitely had uh, the Gates Foundation on board because I know that the Gates Foundation was actually calling people who were against lockdowns, trying to convince them to sort of t- tone down their criticism of lockdowns. It was sort of surprising from, to hear from a, uh, a private foundation.
2: Is there not, can I just, I just want to chip in with a follow up question there, which is there not a third factor here, which is politics, um, that this it was a half scientific, half political controversy, because it's about how you organize society, and, and at least in the scientists I interviewed, those that seemed more on the political left were attracted by the romance of a big project that could unite society and could remake the world and would put their discipline in the center of things. Uh, I mean, uh, Neil Ferguson, I, I'm not saying this for the first time, but when I interviewed him, you know, he said he, th- he thought it was a, a, an extremely exciting moment that we were beating back a highly transmissible virus for the first time in history. And you could tell that there was, it, it was glamorous and it felt idealistic and progressive and all of those kind of words. Do you, do you see yourself politically opposed to those people? Do you, do you think you're politically more attracted to smaller government, to a more libertarian way of running society?
3: Uh, so I'm from Scandinavia, and uh, uh, if we look at the Scandinavian countries, the, the four main ones—Sweden, um, Denmark, Norway, and Finland—at uh, the beginning of the pandemic, they all have socialist governments, social democratic governments. They were the governments in Europe who had the least restrictions. Uh, Norway had a conservative government in the beginning, but through the election, it shifted to a. a uh, a socially democratic government. So if you look at the, uh, the various European countries, for sure I think it's the Scandinavian social democratic countries who took a lighter approach with less lockdowns, protecting the working class and the children uh, and so on, while UK had a conservative government, uh, Germany had a conservative government, and excuse my ignorance because I don't know every Uh, I mean, uh, France had a conservative government. America had Donald Trump. Exactly. So, uh, and I don't know every country in in Europe exactly where they are on the political uh, spectrum. But for sure, I think in Europe, it was the left countries who were less skeptical towards uh, uh, these lockdowns. And I think one interesting thing in Sweden, uh, the prime minister, uh, uh, Stefan Löfven, it's why I think Sweden was one of the few countries who actually had a worker, member of the working class as a prime minister, as the leader of the country, because he's the welder. Uh, and I think that could have something to do with it. He knows the concerns of the working class that uh, maybe somebody like Boris Johnson does not understand.
2: Okay, let's take, well, I'm gonna take more in the room, but let's take one from online, people who are watching online. I think Flo has some ready.
1: Yes, yeah, so I've got one here about variants. And it's quite a straightforward one from John Hawksley. And he asks, why has the original variant disappeared? Rather than herd immunity, does each variant, in fact, have a limited lifespan because of cumulative failures in its replication?
3: Uh, I think it's because when there's a new variant that's uh, more highly transmittable, that sort of keeps uh, competes out the, the previous variants. And uh, that can sometimes be a good thing because if the new variant is less fatal but more transmittable, that can actually be a good thing. OK,
2: let's take a couple in the room. Uh, this lady here.
1: My question is, you know, this talk is about the future and the kind of lessons learned aside, what do you think the ramifications of this pandemic will be? Will be? Um, you know, it makes me nervous. Like I, I was at university while the pandemic happened. I wasn't at primary school, I wasn't at secondary school, you know, mental health effects, like all of that. I just, I know it's a bit fortune-telling, but um, what do you think the biggest impacts will be?
3: I think there will be an enormous distrust in public health agencies. I think there will be an enormous distrust in the science, in the scientific community. I think that will take decades to repair, if it ever can be repaired, I don't know. Uh, and I'm sure there will be consequences, political consequences as well. Uh, there obviously enormous health consequences from the collateral damage, which I mentioned. I think there's also economic consequences of these lockdowns that we're starting to see now. So I think the consequences are profound. and. Maybe we are in a tipping balance uh, in terms of whether we sort of accept this as the standard way of doing things, which I think would be terrible. Or maybe we go in a different direction where we say, this was a big, big fiasco, which I think it was. and Let's make sure it doesn't happen and let's make sure we sort of repair the damage and we uh, make sure it never happens again.
6: Yep. Okay. I think in January of this year, the UK had its own ONS figures, the Office for National Statistics, made available to the public. And they spoke about the deaths from comorbidities and the deaths directly from the virus. And it's no coincidence that the UK has the second highest obesity rate in Europe and the number of deaths from comorbidities, if I remember correctly, were caused by obesity. To what extent do you think, um, as individuals, our individual responsibility to our health is also a responsibility to the communities we live in, to our society? And in regards of that, do you not expect that governments at this stage of the game, should really be saying to the nations, talking about the nation's health, how to lead the healthiest lives. Mm. Okay. And educate us towards that.
3: I think that's always important to do, and I think it's especially important during the pandemic. We know that if you in good physical health, you have better ability to uh, fight an infection. So for example, you want people to be out exercising. You don't want people to stay at home inside. Uh, You want them out there running, walking, bicycling, canoeing, uh, whatever, uh, because physical exercise is important. So it's always important, but it's extra important during a pandemic.
2: We're actually gonna take three questions on the trot. this next time, and then you can answer whichever one. The guy's standing up at the back, and then we'll go to one from online. Will Jones from
7: Daily Skeptic. Um, you talked about doing a lockdown for the old people um, in a future pandemic as well, possibly. Um, and uh, I was speaking to an adult social care worker this week who said that she saw in her, uh, her the people that she looked after, that they would, um, that people who, old people who previously who lived at home, who previously could walk, who went out for a walk every day, Uh, once the lockdowns came in, would not not even be able to walk unaided from their bedroom to their lounge. And we know that thousands um, uh, of of old people during the lockdowns, because we did lock down old people, of course, along with everybody else, um, died as a direct consequence of lockdowns uh, and also suffered, those who didn't die, suffered uh, many um, uh, misfortunes and um, harms. Um, Do you think it's, it's ever justifiable, given those harms, to confine... Um, old people, uh, for example, um, uh, to to, to, to lock them down, given that the the immensely harmful impact that it has on them, we're not just talking about um, a little bit, but but actually many thousands of them dying, would it not be better um, just to let the the virus, which is a natural event, uh, just uh, to take its course?
3: Well, I don't think it's an either or, because we should not lock people inside, the, uh, all people should be able to be outside and walk and so on and live uh, close to normal lives. But we need to help protect themselves. So for example, for an old person to go to Hyde Park and have a stroll, I think is critically important and it's not risky. On the other hand, we can help them so they don't have to go to the supermarket and have somebody else go buy their food for them because being in the crowded supermarket might not be a good idea during the height of a pandemic for somebody who's 77 years old. So I think it's neither lockdown nor doing nothing is sort of uh, making sure that you minimize the, uh, the, the risk for all the people to be exposed during the, the, the height of the waves. Okay, let's get a, an online question.
1: Well, I have a, a pair of questions about lockdowns here from our online audience. So Pat price tomes following on from this gentleman's question here, says, not everyone in a vulnerable group wants protection. Is this not a point worth making? There seems to be an assumption that it should be forced upon them. So that's the first part of that question. And then from Richard Thompson, he asks, lockdowns were often imposed on the back of scary epidemiological models. In hindsight, do you think providing models to a focus protection approach and the comparatively lower years of life lost plus economic and civil liberty benefits would have helped change hearts and minds?
3: Uh, I think these models where you predict a certain number of people are gonna die are pretty useless. Um, And the key thing is what is the optimal strategy to use? So in the case of COVID, in the beginning, we didn't know exactly what was the infection fatality rate, which was the risk of dying if you get infected, uh, because we didn't know how many people had get infected. So in the United States, uh, uh, Dr. Barashaya did sort of the first big study in, in, in one county to see what was the, uh, the people who have already been infected to try to calculate that number. Uh, and it's important to do that, on the other hand, the optimal study doesn't depend on if it's 0.1% or 1%, because the optimal study depends on the difference, the relative risk in the difference by by age or some other factor. Uh, So in terms of deciding what is the optimal thing to do, uh, these models that Imperial College developed, I think, were very useless. And uh, it, uh, uh, also they were completely dependent, they were very fancy, but they were completely dependent on what uh, infection fatality rate they put in, which we didn't know at the time when they did these models. Uh, So the key thing was the difference in the age gradient. That was enough to determine what was the optimal uh, policy to do on this pandemic. And what was the first question again?
1: Whether vulnerable groups who do not want to be protected should be forced to go into isolation if we decide to protect certain groups in society.
3: No, no, I think in the Great Barrington Declaration, we encourage people, older people, to be, be uh, uh, cautious and we, to help them protect themselves. But if they want to meet the grandchildren, which I would like to do if I'm 80 and there's a pandemic, uh, then I think uh, that's something you have to trust them to make that decision. Uh, but if they don't care too much whether they go to the supermarket or not, why don't we have somebody who is 20 to go and do that for them? So they don't have to take that risk.
2: I think, uh, we are gonna be around in the bar afterwards. So do um, ask any questions you have. But um, I'd just like to ask you in a way to kind of sum up um, with the million dollar question in a way, which is, do you think it's over? The, I talked about the atmosphere in London feeling like it's COVID had never happened. and, and at least on the surface, it does feel like that. Do you feel like the world as it was is where we now live? Or do you feel something changed during that period and that
3: it's not actually over? Uh, Well, COVID is never gonna go away. It will be endemic. So we will live it uh, for hundreds of years. Uh, In the long time, as uh, those of us who are alive now will all have had COVID most of us, and will then have immunity. Uh, when new kids are born, they're gonna be exposed during their first years of life when this is not a, a dangerous disease, and then they're gonna have protection uh, for later. Uh, so it will be endemic just like the four existing, uh, the previously existing coronaviruses that gives us uh, the common cold now and then. Uh, so in that sense, it's never gonna be over. But I hope that the panic <coughs> and the lockdowns are over and I think we're seeing that I think the public sentiment has shifted enormously uh, during the last year and a year and a half or two years uh, which is very encouraging I think uh, so I don't think we're gonna go into panic mode again because of COVID uh, I think there are some countries uh, Canada which are still sort of having some issues um, Uh, but uh, they have no choice but to get out, sort of come out of it as well.
2: So those broader things that you touched on, the kind of authoritarian creep, the the sense that the academy and universities are politicized and aren't free places to speak. Do you think that is going to get better or are you
3: worried about that still? I'm worried about that. I was never worried about we will eventually sort of win the hearts and minds when it comes to the pandemic. But when it comes to reforming science and how public health operates, I think it can go either way. And we have to try, but we'll see. But we have to try to, uh, because I think it's important to have a well-functioning public health system. It's important to have a well-functioning scientific community.
2: Professor Martin Kildorf, thank you so much. Thank you so much.